Welcome back to the Word Encounter, episode 186, where we will continue our journey into the book of Matthew, chapter 18. Let's get started. Title says, Who is the Greatest? If that isn't something that <laughs> tends to dominate the human consciousness, I don't know what is, but we see that the disciples are not immune to this idea or this concept. Um, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Verse 2, he called a small child and had him stand among them. Truly, I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like one of these little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We see here that not only God, but Jesus as well, you know, <laughs> and, you know, God in the Old Testament, Jesus now in the New Testament, we see that they have a very strong affinity for children, you see. Very strong affinity. We see in the Old Testament, God is always talking about the innocent and what's more innocent than a child. And so Jesus is, is telling his disciples, he says, unless you become like one of these, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is the attribute of a child that Jesus is specifically referring to? And it says in verse four, therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this is the one that is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes uh, one child like this in my name welcomes me. So we see here Jesus is being very specific. Whoever humbles oneself like a child. Uh, children, before they get, um, you know, inundated and bombarded uh, and, 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 and mentally, um, uh, what's the word? I can't think of the word I'm looking for, but, but they're turned in influence, mentally influenced, you know, by adults. They're innocent. They have no concept of certain things. And see, they're just innocent children. They're like a blank slate. And then adults come along and they start to get polluted. And then it says, um, and, and that's what it means to be humble like one of these children, not assuming that you know everything, not assuming that you are all that, <laughs> you know. And then it goes on to say in verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, See, that's to qualify. These little ones believe in me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. So the Lord is a warning. And so we have a lot of people I know that, you know, uh, ruin, you know, any concept of Santa Claus for kids, you know, because they don't want them believing in fairies and this, that and the other. And there are a whole bunch of people who think of God in the same way that they think of Santa Claus. And so they go out of their way to make sure that little ones, that children, don't get, don't, don't get um, uh, inundated with false concepts with this thing, this fairy called God, right? And so they go out of their way to make sure that children don't believe in God. And Jesus is saying here, it'd be better for those people to have a rock hung around their neck and thrown into the sea and drowned in the depths of the sea than to turn an innocent baby from believing in me. That's a stern warning. Then it says in verse 8, If your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. 
And so the Lord is saying, is it better for you to maim yourself? <laughs> you know, and I think he's just using examples, but maybe not. Maybe he's being literally serious. It's better for you, you know, than if you have your feet or your hands lead you into sin, or if you have your eyes cause you to covet, you know, cause you to want things that 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 throw you into a state of of um, of, of of desiring sin and, and sinful activity in your life. It'd be better for you to get rid of those things than to succumb to them. The parable of the lost sheep. See to it that you don't despise one of these little uh, one of these little ones, because I tell you that in heaven, their angels continually view the face of my father in heaven. Let, Let me read another translation of this. This is the passion translation. It says, be careful that you do not corrupt one of these little ones, for I can assure you that in heaven, each of their angelic guardians have instant access to my heavenly father. And so this is saying that, look, make sure you're careful with regard to how you handle these children, because they have guardians in heaven that have instant access to God, and they will see how you're treating these kids. And this is why. This is why abortion is so heinous. The Lord adores his children. And what could be more grievous to God than to have his children aborted before they even get the opportunity to live? He says that they have a guardian assigned to them in heaven that have direct access to him. And so for those that make that decision, woe to you, I would say, you know, you, you got to be careful. You got to be careful. You know, you got to be careful with the decisions you make, especially when they involve other people's lives. We have a movement, you know, to call these unborn babies fetuses in an effort to dehumanize them. See, to, to not allow people to think of them as human beings. So we'll call them fetus. A thing that's inconvenient for you. So you need to get rid of it. See, we use all these words in order to to um, uh, have ourselves masquerade in a uh, state of denial with regard to what this decision encompasses. Do so at your own peril. In verse 12, it says, what do you think if someone has 100 sheep and one of them goes astray? Won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. See? And so this, <laughs> this also, had, this is a little anecdotal note, this also happens in reverse, right? And so if, you know, I used to teach a lot of classes um, and, uh, and, and I would uh, teach uh, Bible study uh, at my workplace and in other workplaces and, and whatnot. And so everybody could be, oh, that was a great lesson. That was a great lesson. Everybody, except for one person. And they might make a critical note, well, that was okay, or I didn't get anything out of that, or whatever. And I would lament over that one person's opinion all night long instead of all of the others that were on the opposite side of that one opinion. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's mice nature or human nature. But anyway, it says here, wouldn't if you lose one sheep, even though 99 are saved, aren't you going to rejoice? He says, in the same way, it is not uh, the will of your father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Not one. See, this is Jesus talking again about the children. Not one. It's not the will of the father that one of them should perish. 
Not one. Yet we slaughter our children by the millions via abortion and worldwide. And I could give you some numbers just for the United States. I could give you some numbers just in the African-American community, in particular in the United States. And I will say this, that up to half of our present day population has not been allowed to be born. We've got 44 some odd million people, uh, African-Americans in the United States, and roughly half have been aborted since 1972. Restoring a brother, in verse 15, it says, if your brother sins against you, not if he offends you or if he makes you mad, it says, if your brother sins against you, Go tell, him, uh, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two other, uh, others with you. And the implication here is take one or two other brothers or sisters, one or two other siblings in Christ with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, then go tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. See? And so he's saying, well, if he still won't come to grips with, with his sin, then, okay, he's essentially placing himself outside of the family at that point. Again, I have to emphasize sin, not offense. See, a lot of people get offended by what somebody else says or does or whatever, and they get mad at them, they get upset with them, and then they're at each other's throats. And this, and That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about if a brother or sister sins against you, sins, you know, if they rob you, if they uh, have, a, a, you know, if they commit adultery with your spouse, you know, if they, if they sin against you, you see, that's different. Let's go down to verse 19. Mm. Again, truly I tell you, if two, of you uh, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I will be there amongst them. Now, what does this mean? This doesn't mean that if two or three of you get together and start praying about something that isn't righteous or pray, pray about something that's unholy that is going to take place or happen or something that is selfish. You know, what this is saying in particular, if two or three are gathered together in my name, so, so assume that if, if two or three of you are together, that Jesus himself in bodily form is there sitting there with you. Okay, he says, if, if two or three are, are, are gathered together in my name, Jesus is with me. He says he's going to be with us. It says, uh, any matter uh, that you pray for will be done for you. Now, this assumes a couple of things. Like I said, this, this assumes that this is something righteous and holy and something not bad. And the implication in the scripture also uh, assumes that it is something that God deems that you are deserving of and that you can handle. And so in any translation, you know, words get used, uh, words get used in the original text that we don't have exact words for in English or other language, uh, other languages. And so do our best to try and um, translate and communicate the meaning. And so the implication uh, of the scripture, what it implies is that whatever it is you are praying for, it is something that you are deserving of and something that you can handle. You know, you don't give a six year old keys to the car. 
You know, they may be great. They may be deserving of, of lavish praise and other things, but they can't handle it. They're not old enough. They're not mature enough. See, God does the same thing. First, uh, we already said that. Okay. The parable of the unforgiving servant. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Now, we have to remember that the rabbis were teaching the people that if you forgive somebody three times, that's what you need to do, at least three times. So when Peter is saying seven times, he's doubling that. So he's thinking he's being very generous. He said, how many, Lord? You know, up to seven times, Lord? But Jesus says, I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven, 490 times. In other words, an infinite number of times. See, Jesus is saying, you know, Peter's thinking he's being generous, but Jesus is saying, no, you forgive as many times as I'm willing to forgive you. Verse 23, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, uh, one who owed 10,000 talents. Now, at that time, we can probably translate this into millions of dollars to something that that servant probably could never pay back. It says when he began to settle accounts, this is the king who owed uh, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children and everything uh, he had be sold in order to help pay back his debt. And that still wouldn't cover his debt. It says, at this, the servant fell face down before him and said, please be patient with me and I will pay everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him and forgave him the loan. So that's what happened here. So what did that servant do? He went out and he found another servant that owed him a hundred denarii, which was a fraction of what he owed the king. See, he owed us a small pittance and he grabbed him, started choking him, started beating him up and said, pay, pay me what you owe. But that servant couldn't pay him. He says, you know, he did the same thing that the other servant did. So he fell before him and he asked for forgiveness. He says, be patient with me and whatnot. But he wasn't willing. See, the king was patient with him, but he wasn't willing to be patient with the one who owned him. <laughs> so he was extended grace, but he was not extending grace to the other person. And so, uh, so the other servants witnessed this, and they became very upset. So they went to the king, and they told the king what this guy had did, because this guy had put this other guy in prison, in debtor's prison, because he didn't pay him. And so he went, uh, they went, and they told the king. The king got mad. <laughs> and it says, then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you, have also, shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant? as I had mercy on you? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a legit question, right? I had mercy on you for doing something to me, yet you didn't have mercy on somebody else for the exact same thing that you did to me. And the king became angry. His master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured. Not just to be put in jail, but to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. So what Jesus is saying is, look, he's saying every one of us, every one of us is deserving of hell and damnation. Every last one of us. The only one who isn't is Jesus. Everybody else is because we have all succumbed to sin. See? And so what Jesus is saying, look, 
myself and my father, we're willing and we're able to forgive you again and again and again and again. Unless you are not willing to forgive others who commit offenses against you. And sometimes these others don't even commit offenses against you. You just think they do. But what Jesus is saying, if you aren't willing to forgive these other people, and if you aren't willing to forgive these other people sincerely from your heart and mean it, then we are not obligated to forgive you. And you will be handed over to be tortured. Chapter 19. It says the question of divorce, verse three, some Pharisees approached him to test him. Pharisees always testing Jesus because they don't like him. They're trying to trap him. See? And so they always and they always publicly test him to try and trap him in in some kind of thing so that they can say he's not worthy and kill him. <laughs> they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Jesus says, haven't you read? He replied that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. This is important today because we, we're, we're you know, trying to go down this path where we have definitions of other genders and other things. There's male and there's female. I mean, this is elementary science. People always talking about pay attention to the science. This is elementary science. There's male and there's female. And that's it. There's, there's nothing else. There's male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Verse 7. What, and, and just a, a quick note here. This is why you don't get married flip, flippantly. You know, don't get married just on, on a whim. You know, you need to count the cost. You need to be serious about this thing. Because when you get married to somebody, it says the two shall become one flesh and let no man separate them. This isn't something you do without deep and considerate thought. Verse 7, then why, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and send her away? Jesus said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the uh, hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. And so Jesus said, look, Moses gave you an out, but that's not what the intention was. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. Now, this is a hard word, right? Because we got a lot of people out there in the church and other places, married, divorcing, married, marrying somebody else. The word is saying that unless the reason is sexual um, immorality, then you're committing adultery with the other woman that you marry, even if you do it under the civil law. Verse 10, he says, uh, his disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man and his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Jesus responded, not everyone can accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. So Jesus is essentially saying, you're not necessarily wrong disciples, but not everyone can accept this, except for those to whom have been called, essentially. Verse 12, it says, For there are eunuchs, men without testicles, who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made by men, men being castrated by other men. There are eunuchs who are uh, made by men. 
And there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there are men who have essentially castrated themselves, not physically, but from from being married, you know, uh, and so they're basically um, uh, entering into celibacy. And it says the one who is able to accept it should should accept it. And so there are ones who have entered into celibacy for the purpose of the kingdom of heaven. See, and I think this is where you know Catholics get uh, uh, get their marching orders from with regard to priests not being able to marry, uh, committing themselves to celibacy, and that sort of thing. Blessing the children, verse thirteen. It says the little children were brought were brought to Jesus for him to place his hand on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. The, the disciples rebuked little children. A- haven't they gotten a clue yet how Jesus feels about children? Verse 14, Jesus said, leave the little children alone. Don't try to keep them from me. Don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And so he, he didn't say the kingdom of heaven belongs to children. He says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. In other words, to those that can humble themselves like little children, to those that can exhibit childlike faith, those that hear the word of God and just believe it and not sit back and say, well, prove it to me or this, that, and the other. I don't believe this. I'm a skeptic. You're going to have to change my mind. That's not what a child does. And so this is what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those like children, demonstrating childlike humility, childlike faith, childlike devotion, childlike adoration. And then he placed his hands on them and blessed them. The rich young ruler in verse 16, then someone came up and asked him, teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Legitimate question. They recognize Jesus for who he is and they say, okay, teacher, what do I need to do to make sure to guarantee that I have eternal life? It says, if you, Jesus says, if you want to enter into, uh, into life, yes, if you want to enter into life, notice Jesus says, do you, if you want to enter into life, he doesn't say eternal life. Jesus is equating eternal life with life. If you want to enter into real life, <laughs> keep the commandments. Which ones, he asked. Jesus answered, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. So then the the, the rich man answers, he says, I have kept all of these, the young man told him. But he, this is what he asked. What do I still lack? Now, why would he ask that? I wonder, I I don't, I don't have the uh, answer. I'm just asking a question. He asked the question, Jesus answers him. This is what you need to do. But there was something in him that said, I'm still lacking. (laughs) He says, what do I still lack? What else do I need? I know there's something else. What else do I need to do? See, if I would have asked that question and Jesus answered, I'm going to say, okay, cool. I got it. I'm going to go on. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to keep doing. But he said, what do I still lack? And Jesus responds, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, if you want to go beyond the bare minimum, if you want to excel, go sell your belongings and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Wow. When the young man heard that, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. He wasn't willing 
to give up everything in this life in order to follow Jesus. And I can't help but believe most of us, even those of us who profess to be believing Christians, we would probably fall into the same category. And for that, we need to continuously repent. Possessions and the kingdom. Jesus said to his disciples, you know, this is right after he's talked to the rich man. He says, truly, I tell you, it will be hard. He doesn't say it will be impossible. He says it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle uh, than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now listen to the disciples' response. When the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished because they're thinking, well, if rich people can't be, you know, enter the kingdom of heaven, then who can be saved? Because from their perspective, if you were rich, you were rich because you were blessed. And you were blessed because you were righteous. So your richness was a display of your righteousness. Because after all, if you weren't blessed, you wouldn't be rich. I mean, you wouldn't be righteous. And if you're not righteous, it's because you're not following God. So, you know, the richness or, or the wealth of a person was a, um, a display to them of their righteousness. And so they're saying, you know, who can be saved? And Jesus says, um, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So Jesus responds that with man, you know, no man, not only the rich man, poor man, everything in between, no man can save himself without God. It's not possible. But with God, even rich people can be saved. Verse 29, and everyone who has, uh, and everyone, so Jesus is talking about, uh, He's, he's talking more, he's giving more general wisdom to, uh, to his disciples. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name, you know, not just leave because they get tired of family and they leave. No, because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So Jesus is just dropping general wisdom and knowledge with regard to how the kingdom of God functions on his disciples so that they can have the right perspective, right? They can clear out any wrong perspective such that when they go forth and minister to people, they will be ministering a true unfiltered word from God's mouth himself, not filtered by man, not colored by man, not influenced by man, but directly from the word of God. You can only do that if you uh, make sure that you don't have any filters and that the word that is coming out of your mouth is pure from the word of God, even if you don't necessarily agree with it. A lot of people don't agree with stuff, so they try to color it. They try to influence, influence it in order to mean something other than what it's intended to mean because they don't like it. Mm -mm. The word of God has to be pure and unfiltered even if we don't understand it or even if we don't agree with it. And that's what Jesus is doing with his disciples. And so with that, we are done for the day. We're going to pick it up in uh, chapter 20 tomorrow, episode 187. And as is always the case, before it's too late, Jesus is constantly, consistently, and forevermore sending out his invitation with regard to joining his family in the kingdom of God. 
And the word says in Romans chapter 10 that if you confess with your mouth and sincerely believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, then the word promises that you will be saved from eternal damnation and that you will be saved into the kingdom of God's family and that you will not be put to shame. That is a tremendous invitation and offering, but it can only be made by our free will. This isn't something that one can be pressured into doing because your heart will not be sincere in that case. It has to be a free will choice. And with that, we are done for the day. We'll pick it up tomorrow. Stay safe, be blessed, and keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Bye-bye now.